It's go time. It's been an interesting week in the Canadian Football League, and for some, it may have come a few too late. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. That ambiguous reference was to the firing, well, technically, not a rehire of the head coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, Craig Dickinson, who finished his career at 34-34, and having started on January 25th, 2019, after the sudden resignation of Chris Jones, Jeremy Day, who'd barely been on the job himself, had basically a very short time to make a call. So he brought up from special teams, Craig Dickinson to be the head coach. Now that it's over, what do you think of the tenure? The last two seasons have to be huge disappointments. Early on 2019, they inherited a pretty good team got all the way to the Western final were competitive again in 2020 but you cannot have a team ending two seasons in a row on a seven game losing streak sitting in a pretty strong position to make a playoff spot before those streaks started both of these years and then just watch it fizzle away throughout the second half of the season a 500 record is, is an interesting record to finish with because it was a, a tale of really a strong first couple of seasons and a not-so-strong last two seasons. Riders finished first in his first year in 2019. Then the cancelled year of 2020 came along, but the Riders still finished second the following year in 2021. Both times they would lose to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the playoffs. The Rough Riders from there, as you mentioned, they would start strong, 4-1 in 2022, 3-1 in 2023, but somehow found to get to that magic number of 6-12. and 12. I'm judging just by the lack of attendance at the last game at Mosaic Stadium. Coming to it and being in the stadium as I'm always early for a game, looking around and there was just not a soul to be seen. Normally it's already bustling by that time. Now the attendance turned out to be not bad, in terms of how many people came in. It wasn't a bad day at the gate. Overall, though, the uh, energy in the stadium, at least at the start of the game, uh, was palpable. Even with that first touchdown drive, people were sort of holding back, I felt. Football fans in, in the prairies, as we've talked about, are, are really the, the heart and soul of the league. And they are very in tune with what's happening both on the field and off the field for their respective teams that they cheer for. You could see throughout the season that frustration begin to grow with Rough Riders fans. There was little glimmers of hope here and there. Dick Dolagala looked pretty decent in a couple of his early starts. Fans were excited about him having the opportunity. But I really believe the tone from Craig Dickinson over these last few weeks has really been lackluster and, and that has shown through with the product on the field. It, it seems at times he has been disinterested or lacks the ability to really motivate that team. And that was his downfall. 
I'm a little bit surprised that Jeremy O'Day gets re-upped for a, a three-year extension, given what's happened as well. But as as you mentioned, he really was new to the job when he promoted Craig Dickinson. Kind of got left in the lurch when Chris Jones left him a little bit in the lurch when he left for an NFL opportunity with Cleveland. And O'Day did what he thought was right at the time and gave Craig Dickinson that opportunity. So this is going to be the period for Jeremy O'Day now to prove his mettle as that general manager. He needs to bring in a head coach that he really feels strongly about and put a stamp on this team and the direction it's headed. O'Day gets a three-year extension, so he signed through 2026. Craig Reynolds, who extended him, said a lot of very positive things about the work that O'Day has done. He did indicate that they needed some stability within the franchise to attract people and that Jeremy O'Day throughout the CFL is well-respected and people want to be able to work with him for him. So that part of the equation, it goes unsung in some ways because we don't hear it too often. But Krug Reynolds, I thought, did a great job of really elocuting that O'Day is there for a reason and they trust him. He's been around the organization since 1999. He's had a variety of positions. He knows what it takes. And he's a man with big shoulders as well. He took the brunt of whatever questions that came at him. He didn't duck or shy away from any one of them at the post-season press conference. Some have been calling for all three to be removed. Let's go back to November 21st of 2021, and Edmonton fires their president, Chris Preston, their general manager, Brock Sunderland, and their head coach, Jamie Elizondo. Well, what has that netted them since? Fewer wins than the Rough Riders have secured in that amount of time. There are definitely some needs on this team that Jeremy O'Day will need to address. As I said, this is his opportunity to really put a stamp on things. The offensive line is one that has struggled. I imagine there's going to be a few pieces remaining that will continue to grow together, but there are some other weak links on that offensive line that I think need to be addressed. One thing that has been great is the receiver talent that they have brought in. Sean Bain, Braden Lenius, etc. They've brought in some very talented receivers, some Canadian talent, which is always important in the CFL. Last year, they had arguably the best linebacking core in the league. So it's not a matter of an inability to attract players to come to Saskatchewan. It's finding the right fit to, to fill the weak spots that are on that team right now. Starting quarterback is going to continue to be a question as well. Trevor Harris was signed to a two-year contract prior to this season. He's gone down injured. He is in his late 30s. I don't know how well he's going to bounce back from that injury. He will get an opportunity to compete in camp, I believe, for that starting job next year. But that might be another position that they are looking for some more competition. The Rough Riders, other than Harris, all their quarterbacks are free agents at the end of the season. That gives you either options or problems, depending on how you view your future. The biggest issue, I think, for O'Day, and this is something that happens, I think, far too often still in our world, is cancel culture. You make one mistake and you cannot get past it. Well, was it a mistake to hire Craig Dickinson? Some will argue now, yes, it was. But you can only find that out after 
the fact. You can't know that before. Dickinson's biggest problems in my estimation were twofold. One, leadership just wasn't there. It's maybe not his style. And two, one of the other things that I thought was always hamstringing him was his desire to really stay involved with special teams. Rather than focus on the entire team all the time, he did have a favorite venue within the team, and that was special teams. So the the whole idea of being a head coach, and this was brought out during these press conferences, is part of your acumen is to coach players. But the other part of that is to coach coaches. I don't know that Craig Dickinson did a lot of that. I think that's a fair assessment. It's going to be really something to watch this offseason to see the list of candidates that get tossed around and who actually comes in for an interview for that head coach position. We know there are a lot of teams that are playoff bound right now with some guys in coordinator roles that are likely to get a look. Maybe some guys that have previous CFL experience that are all, that are now coaching in the U.S. in various leagues as well. So um, a lot of names have been tossed about over these last couple of days. That's going to be fun to watch. Let's start with Calgary. Mark Killam is a name that's been tossed about. If we move to Hamilton, it's Scott Milanovic. If you go to Winnipeg, it's Buck Pierce. If you go to Toronto, it's Corey Mace. And Pete Costanza, also in Toronto, has has come up. Costanza, yes, as well. Although I think he's more of an outlier than Corey Mace would be at this point in time. The hope is that you get somebody that can regroup this team, get their focus back. Jeremy O'Day said categorically they're not trying to rebuild this team. They think they have the team that can get them to the promised land. They just have to make a few tweaks. Well, that will be the coach and that will be a couple of free agents or maybe drafts. And one thing that you've got to give O'Day credit on, and you touched on it, draft picks. He is hit on so many draft picks. Logan Furland, Kean Schaefer-Baker, just to name two that are starters with the team. Some of these guys are late round picks. He's done well with the Canadian draft. I think that was another factor as to why the Rough Riders wanted to keep him around. We see what the Canadian draft has done for the Blue Bombers. Absolutely. A couple other names that have been tossed around here. Uh, Jordan McSimich in BC. Henry Burris, who's currently a tight ends coach with the LA Rams. I saw his name pop up today. It's going to be tough to lure these guys back that have these NFL opportunities. Uh, I know for as far as fanfare goes, Henry Burris is a very popular name in Regina with the Rough Riders. I don't know if he's the right fit necessarily, but um, somebody even mentioned Paul Lapolis, which I don't think is going to happen. He is a great offensive coordinator offensive coordinator mind but has had a couple of failed attempts at being a head coach seems to have found a a fit right now on that tsn panel as well so i don't know if lapo is going to get a look is there anybody from within that they maybe look at promoting as well i highly doubt unless it's kelly jeffrey uh, or jason shivers the problem with either one of those is that especially with Shivers, is that he may not be around if there is a new head coach coming along. Now, Jordan McSimmick is a very interesting situation because he spent time in Edmonton. He's now been doing very well with the Lions, and the offenses wherever he's gone have done well. Would you argue that the Saskatchewan Rough Rider offense was the problem this past year? I don't think so, but they did 
point to, and I've done it many a time on this podcast, the for and against, the disparity between how many points they score versus how many points they allow. Well, you could be scoring 30 a game, but if you're giving up 45, is that the offense's fault? Not necessarily. I mean, I'd say both sides of the ball struggled at various times this season. Trevor Harris's injury has to have been a bit of a setback for sure. You had a couple of younger quarterbacks in Mason Fine and Jake Dolagala that didn't have a lot of snaps under their belts and now had to step up into that role. Trevor Harris did provide veteran presence and stability to that quarterback situation. I don't know if he was going to lead them into a Western final this year if he had played throughout. And you can't necessarily fault the head coach for a a catastrophic injury to your quarterback. But I think there is a few pieces on both sides of the ball that were leading causes of this 6-12 and record. Harris didn't exactly light up the scoreboard when he was the main quarterback for the team. And think back to the June 11th game against the Edmonton Elks. Had uh, Kai Loxley scored a touchdown late in the fourth quarter uh, on a second and a third attempt from the one-yard line, Edmonton wins that game. Their streak at home is over. Their losing streak overall is over, and the Rough Riders are scratching their heads. Instead, it works out the other way. The, again, they play the Elks, and it's a 12-11 game. It's There's not much offense happening with Harris, so I don't think Harris is the answer either. I look at this as a situation where they've got to re-sign Jake Dolagala for sure, most likely Mason Fine. Whether you want to keep Shea Patterson is another question. I don't think Antonio Pipkin is providing much for this team. He's probably going to be an FA regardless. The Rough Riders have to do something to keep the future alive. And if you go with Harris, you're just a one-year solution, and that's it, if that. One curious stat that has prevailed and still prevails is that in no given year have both Alberta football teams been out of the playoffs. And again, in 2023, it's the case where the Stampeders now make the playoffs. Granted, Winnipeg was removed from the West for two periods from 86 to, I believe it was 2001, and then from 2006 to 2012. So the the Bombers weren't here, so one of them was going to make it in that time period anyway. But let's go, go back to post-World War One, or check that. Let's go back to post-World War Two and call this the common era. When BC enters in 54, there's a five-team West. The chances of two of them not making it are quite high, but yet... It doesn't work out that way. And even when Edmonton goes down in the 60s, the Stampeders go up. If there was ever a year for it to happen, this should have been the year based on their records. If if not for Saskatchewan sliding off of the face of the earth in the second half of the season, there's no way that Calgary or Edmonton make the playoffs this year. A lot of missed opportunities for, for the Riders to clinch. And now we have a 6-12 and 12 team making the playoffs. A 6-12 and 12 team who, interestingly enough, just beat the number two team pretty soundly this last week. So that's the semifinal matchup coming up. And Calgary has proven that they, uh, they can beat BC. 6-12, and 12, last time in the West that made the playoffs was Edmonton in 1999. 
lowest number wins ever making it to the Grey Cup was Ottawa at 5-11, and 11, way back in 1981. But they made the Grey Cup with that record. For Alberta, I mean, it's kind of cool that they've always got somebody to root for, although I doubt that anyone in Edmonton is cheering for the Stampeders in the playoffs. The Stamps still have one more game. They may get the seven wins. Of the two or three teams, call them, in the, in the West that were struggling to make the playoffs, the Stampeders seemed to put it together when they needed to. Can you say they got hot in that they went three and six in the second half of the season to take a stranglehold on the playoff spot? I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, they do have an opportunity to pick up. I shouldn't write them off in this last game of the season coming up, especially against a Blue Bombers team who is likely to be resting some starters. I'm not saying that they got hot, but I think when push came to shove, they needed certain games and they won those certain games. They, they had to beat the Rough Riders. They did that. They had to go into BC and, and do something about that. And they did that. So Calgary, when they were pushed up against the wall, came fighting back where Saskatchewan and Edmonton weren't able to do so. Given all of this has been happening, we've got a 6-12 and or a 7-11 and team making the playoffs in the West. There has been a chatter, and typically this happens when the West is dominating the East in the interdivisional games between the two teams two uh, divisions. So in other words, the West has won way more games against the East than vice versa. But this year with the East winning so much more, it's kind of interesting that some people are saying, let's get to a one division league again, because I don't, I'm not sure what they want, actually. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me to go to one division. Well, let's look at the numbers though. If, the, if we were in a one division situation this year, with one week remaining, you've got Toronto and Winnipeg in the first round by spots. You've got the BC Lions in third, Montreal in fourth, Hamilton in fifth. You still have the Calgary Stampeders in sixth place, whether it's a, a six win or seven win team. So it doesn't really change the makeup of the playoffs, except who your opponents are. There could be some, some crossover there, but the... East versus East, West versus West ties back to the roots of the founding of the CFL. I know we are kind of traditionalists in that sense on this on this podcast that we want to see the traditional matchups in the playoffs as well. If you look at the final standings as they're going to play out, Calgary in a in a one division league would play BC. And Hamilton would go to Montreal. Well, guess what? In a two-division league that we have, Calgary's going to BC, Hamilton's going to Montreal. I've never understood this need to lump everything into one division. Hockey doesn't do it. Basketball doesn't do it. The NFL has gone out of its way to create more divisions. And baseball has added more divisions. So this need to go into one homogenous line of nine teams, I don't get it. I've never understood it. To me, there's more accentuated excitement when a Western opponent is playing a Western opponent and an Eastern opponent is playing an Eastern opponent. We are pushing to get that 10th team and have five and five eliminate the crossover potential altogether and just run with it. I think that's the, the best way to go. One single division just doesn't make a lot of sense and it doesn't change very often. I mean, we, we do get the odd 
crossover, and we've seen teams crossing over from west to east. We haven't seen it go back the other way. Reasonably could have been this year had a couple of things gone Ottawa's way. We we could be in that crossover going the other direction. It doesn't happen frequently enough that the sixth place team is that much stronger than the teams in the other division that are, are not making the playoffs. Don't like the idea. I don't, I don't think we need to see it. Now, getting back to where I started with this premise about the East winning more, and this is one of the things that hasn't happened all that often, but this year, the East is going to win the series against the West. 18 wins to 13. Eastern teams beat Western teams. But we saw it beginning last year when the East got off to a woeful start. They really came on in the back half of the season and almost evened it at 50-50 in terms of games between the two divisions. Now, the last time the East won the season series, if you want to call it, against the West was 2015, and that was 22 wins to 18. So the, the schedule was a lot different back then. And the biggest discrepancy is akin to this one, where they won in 2001, 21 games to the West's 11. It's not often, but now that you've got a very powerful Toronto Argonauts football team, typically strength pulls the other teams up with it. We saw that with Winnipeg. Teams now have to beat Winnipeg to make it out of the West, so you've got to become better than they are. And we see Montreal finishing above 500 and the Hamilton Tiger Cats right around that 500 mark as well. So given where the Tiger Cats were in the first half of the season, it's been quite the turnaround for them to, to push in. And even until very recent weeks, making a, a push for that second overall playoff spot in the East, they were right in the mix, even despite the slow start. And this is what keeps it fresh and exciting. And if you went to a one-division league with nine teams... What do you do with seven, eight, nine with three weeks to go? As I said before, where most leagues have split their divisions up as much as possible, the CFL is doing the right thing by keeping it the way it is and having more intra-divisional games than inter-divisional games. And that will continue because A, it cuts down travel, and B, the attendance is up this year. It's working. Week 20 started with the Calgary Stampeders going to British Columbia, needing a win to keep their playoff hopes alive. Not only do the Stampeders go in and win, but they thump the BC Lions 41-16 to in front of a big crowd at BC Place. And wow, did Calgary look indestructible. They did. Interesting in this one, I believe BC was trying to win this game in the first half as well. A little bit precautionary perhaps in the second half where they benched Vernon Adams Jr. in favor of Dane Evans. I don't know if they felt the game had got out of hand or if it was maybe more Vernon Adams has taken a lot of punishment over the last few weeks. Might be a good idea to make sure he is rested and healthy and ready to go for that semifinal game. Stampeders at halftime are leading 17-3. to They would come out in the uh, third quarter and add another one immediately. And that put the game pretty much on ice. And it did, I agree. Although Rick Campbell had stated that he wanted 
his top quarterback, Vernon Adams Jr., to be primed and ready to go when they face the Stampeders again. If he, at that time, he didn't know that. But he wanted him ready for the semifinal. And to be fair, Dane Evans needs more playing time with that offense. The other thing you could think of, and that was, and it's a spin type of thing where Campbell says all of this about his number one quarterback, but then maybe he wasn't satisfied with the output and wants to see if Dane Evans can pull it out. It was just interesting because they mathematically still had an opportunity to clinch first in the West, depending on what happened the next night. So it was still very much up in the air. I thought a little bit more conservative than than I would have liked to have seen from the BC Lions, but certainly understandable given what Vernon Adams has meant to this team this year. And Adams wasn't terrible. He was 9 of 13 for 116 yards, one interception. So not a great performance from Vernon Adams, but certainly not something that I would say deserving of being benched for any reason other than to protect his health. If BC wins that game, Winnipeg still has two games to get first place. BC, that's their last hurrah until the playoffs. So I'm I'm not totally dismissing the idea of protecting Adams. I'm just saying that there could be another sort of thought process going on with Jordan McSimmick saying, look, do we need to see Dane? Do you think he's going to give us a spark? Vernon Adams Jr. had a decent first half, but the offense wasn't going anywhere. Jake Mayer, on the other hand, 10 completions of 21 attempts for 123 yards. What they did do was run the ball. They did. It was not a, a brilliant passing night by Jake Mayer by any means, but you look at those rushing numbers between Peyton Logan and Kadeem Carey, almost 200 yards total of rushing, 193 yards between the, those two, and they just pounded the ball. Peyton Logan eight carries for 105 yards, including a 39-yarder. So when he got open space, he took full advantage of it. Three rushes of of 10 yards or more, two of over 20 yards, a a really strong night for Peyton Logan. And Kadeem Carey looks to be back in the form that we expect to see from a, a running back of his caliber. Coming back off of some injuries, looks like he's ready and healthy for the playoffs. 213 total yards rushing by the Stampeders. About 80% more than what they had done in the passing department. Typically, when you see that on a stat sheet, barring turnovers, if you see the rushing numbers high and the passing numbers low, that means that team is dominating. And that's exactly what the Stampeders were doing. Overall, night for the BC Lions, not great, but they did have one highlight with a sack record. Yeah, they did. Matthew Betts has set a new sack record for a Canadian defensive player with with 18 sacks this season. A very strong performance by him. Something that we saw coming. He had a really strong start to the season. Leveled off a little bit throughout the midpoint, but really came on strong here at the end. One other thing I will mention about the Stampeders offense. Jake Mayer only had 10 completions, but there were a lot of catchable balls that were dropped by his receiving core as well. So it could have easily been 13, 14, 15 completions had these guys brought some of those down. We go to Saturday in the first game of the day in Regina where the Toronto Argonauts take their roadshow to the Rough Riders and play a thriller. The Rough Riders get a big break when 
an interception is taken away from the Argonauts because of a light touch on the back shoulder, which preceded a fumble, saving the Rough Riders the possession. They go down, they score, and come out of the first quarter leading 10-7, to and in fact lead at halftime 17-16. to But incredibly, the Rough Riders stuff the Argonauts third and five late in the game, deep in their own zone, Toronto gets one more shot. They have to go third and 10. But Richie Sandani makes a big catch, gets them going down the field, and then DeMonte Coxie makes a huge catch down the uh, left sideline. And next thing you know, the Argonauts, with a, less than a minute to go, are scoring a touchdown. Jake Dolagala then, on the ensuing drive, throws an interception. Rough Riders still have another chance, and even on the last play, Hail Mary... Uh, the hitch and pitch, Dolagala overthrows Mario Alford, and the game ends on that note. That eliminated the Rough Riders with that 29 to 26 loss. What can you say about Cameron Dukes, though? He got some some appropriate playing time in this one. We did not see Chad get Kelly go the distance. Cameron Dukes, 10 of 15 for 113 yards. You want to make sure that your backup quarterback is game ready as well coming into these playoffs. I wouldn't say that Cameron Dukes is ready for a starting role as of yet in this league, but certainly we have seen him in the second half of the season more because the Argonauts wrapped up first place ages ago. It seems like months ago now they've, they've had the opportunity to get him some snaps. He does look comfortable out there as that backup quarterback. Over a 1,000 yards of net offense in that football game. If you're a fan of offense, you have to love the Argonauts. 183 rushing yards, 388 passing yards. The Rough Riders, only 37 rushing yards, but 429 passing yards. Jake Dolagala did everything but win the game. He did. It was a, a exciting performance for the... Rough Riders fans to have that opportunity for the Fan Appreciation Day last home game of the season. They didn't quite pull out the victory, but they gave the top contenders for the Grey Cup all they could handle in this one. Now the Argos got a scare when Anthony Lanier II got a hold of the ankle of Chad Kelly and gave it a little twist as he was going to ground. That left Kelly coming up hobbled. Some people felt that that should have been a penalty on the play, intent to injure, as, as it were, in this rough play. I don't know one way or the other if that merits it, but for the Argonauts, that's a shudder when you see something like that. It is. I don't think there was anything malicious there. I, I think it's more just the way that the tackle was made. Kelly did have a, a little bit of a tweaked leg earlier on in the season as well. There was some speculation that he wasn't going to start a game in that number one role, but again, they have managed him and managed the the number of hits he's taken pretty well. Has to have been a scary moment, though, knowing that you're this close to the playoffs to to see him take a shot like that. You're you're always nervous, but it looks like Chad Kelly's going to be just fine. They do have the first round bye as well, so lots of time to rest up and get ready. It'll be three weeks before, if they do not use him this weekend, it'll be three weeks before Chad Kelly has to step on the field again. So if he does have a bit of a sore ankle, and we we know that 
in Calgary, that's where it all started. He's been slightly hobbled ever since. So maybe this is a great time to get some rehab on it and take some rest as well and let Cameron Dukes go out there against the Ottawa Red Blacks in Ottawa and see what happens. If I'm Ryan Dinwiddie, I don't think I'm letting Chad Kelly step on the field in this this game in the last week of the season. You're right, they do have a bye coming up, an opportunity to rest him for this one. Take full advantage of that. The nightcap, the Edmonton Elks wrapping up their season in Winnipeg. The Blue Bombers, who had already learned that they were going to be in first place, still come out, play strong, give the cello crowd everything they want with a 45-25 to 25 victory over the Edmonton Elks. The one bright spot for the Elks, a return for a touchdown. Deontay's Alexander with that kickoff return for the score. and For the first time since 2015, a special teams return touchdown for the Edmonton Elks. It was a long time coming. I'm sure our friends at the Turf District have a lot to say about that one. Andrew has had some very strong opinions about the Elks special teams, especially their return game over the last few years. So a, a big relief for them. Return coverage has been a bit of a soft spot for the Blue Bombers this year. Mike Miller has not played. He's been injured pretty much all season. Theodric Hansen has just come back here late in the year. They haven't given up a lot of return touchdowns, but they have given up large chunks of return yards, giving the other teams great starting field position. Trey Ford finishes the year with 12 completions of 21 tries for 288 yards. Drew Brown and Zach Kolaris split time for the Blue Bombers. 20 completions between them of 23 attempts for 209 yards. 19 yards, sorry. A very solid night for Drew Brown. 7 for 7 for 94 yards and 2 touchdowns. The Bombers without Dalton shown, he was on the sidelines in a walking boot. There's speculation he's gone for the remainder of the playoffs. There's other people speculating that he may be back for the playoff games. The good thing for the Blue Bombers is that there's a lot of depth in that receiving core. We saw Kenny Lawler step up with a big night and Rashid Bailey, who's often the overlooked receiver on this roster, had three catches and two of those for touchdowns. So a big night for Rashid Bailey. You want to see everybody contributing. And uh, and Greg McRae comes back into the lineup, makes some things happen as well. So even without Dalton Schoen, who's one of the top yardage receivers in the league, there's some pieces there that are capable of, of carrying the load. Now Edmonton had made a game of it. It was only 24-17 to 17 at halftime. They were close. But in that third quarter, they couldn't muster anything, getting only one point while the Bombers started to get the touchdown dance going and two more in the fourth quarter, and they ran away with it. Winnipeg losing but once all year at home. Anytime they won at home, they dominated. There's been a lot of games where it seemed it was close at half with Winnipeg against an opponent, and then you look at the final score, and it's a a victory by two scores or more. They have a way of of finishing out these games. And we talked about Matthew Betts and his record in the BC Lions game. Another interesting record in this one, Nick Dembski goes over 1,000 yards receiving, and this is the first time that a a team has had a Canadian receiver and a Canadian running back, both over 1,000 yards. The running back, of course, Brady Oliveira, who continues to roll and is closing in on 2,000 yards from scrimmage this year. It's unbelievable in one way, but it seems like if they, as they show the stats, over the years, it's one up or one down. And typically it's usually the receivers that get the 1,000 yards, not the rushers. It is, and I, 
I think Oliveira is now sitting at 1,986 all-purpose yards this season. So I expect he's going to get some action early on in the game against Calgary this coming week to push him over that 2,000-yard mark. And then you might see Johnny Augustine stepping in and, and getting some running back plays for the rest of that game. just don't seem to come out as early as we need them bear with us but we're gonna try to do this with none of the games having impact on the overall standings or playoff positions this week the odds makers seem to be hesitant to lay odds in these games given that there's likely to be a lot of starters resting that sort of thing so we're kind of creating our own here and we'll we'll see how we do all right so let's go with friday night and the blue bombers in calgary the Stampeders have categorically stated that they're playing their starters to get this game going. How deep into the game they go. I imagine Drew Brown's going to get the start for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but who else is going to be out there with him? I'm going to install the Blue Bombers as 2.5 point favorites, even though they're on the road, even though they're in Calgary against a team that wants to get a good role going into the playoffs. I think that's a fair assessment of odds. Winnipeg, I don't think, wants to see Calgary win this one. It would give Calgary wins over both BC and Winnipeg in their last two regular season games. That being said, there was a lot of top players for the Bombers that did not practice earlier today. I don't imagine Zach Clare sees the field, or if he does, it might be at most a quarter. This should be Drew Brown's game. But we have seen Drew Drew Brown as quite a capable starter this year. He's led the team to some pretty decent offensive numbers. I will take Winnipeg in a slight win in this one. I just think that they have enough enough firepower, even without some of those starters. And you, you've got to look at, as we mentioned in the second down, with Dalton shown out of the lineup, there are some other receivers that are going to be eager to prove themselves and gain the trust of the offensive coordinator, Buck Pierce, and knowing that they can be relied on. The last time the Blue Bombers were in this situation and going into Calgary on the last weekend of the season with nothing to play for, Calgary beat them. I'm going to lean toward that and say that the Stampeders, who are coming off a big win over BC, and as you mentioned, if you can knock off Winnipeg, that's the top two teams in the West in consecutive weeks, I'm believing that the Stampeders are that motivated that they want to win this game more so than Winnipeg does. I think Winnipeg wants to go in, put in an effort, but they want to leave town in one piece. The next day, Hamilton goes into Montreal and clearly is going to be one of the weirdest scenarios (laughs) that either is going to face this year where this game means nothing, and in one week in the exact same location, it's going to mean everything. Who do you like here? I like the Tiger Cats to get themselves to 500. I think that's going to be a goal for them to finish the season without a losing record. Again, it's going to be a matter of who rests whom. The Tiger Cats are in that situation with quarterback of wanting to get everybody. Who do you you start? Does Bo Levi Mitchell get more action because he hasn't played much this season at all? Matthew Schiltz, do you want to lean on him a little bit? Do you get Taylor Powell back into the lineup? There's a lot of question marks there, but I, I like the Tiger Cats in this one. I think Montreal is going to be cautious and not want to show all of their cards in this one. 
So the road team is going to score the upset. You're right. Neither wants to show too much to the other. Caleb Evans will most likely get the lion's share, if not all of the snaps for the Alouettes at quarterback. I'm leaning towards Bo Levi Mitchell starting the game, maybe playing a quarter, Matthew Schiltz getting another quarter, and then Taylor Powell playing the final half. Montreal at home, Caleb Evans might create some extra entertainment value. I'm going to lean towards the Alouettes winning at home because the Ticats know they've got to face them in seven anyway. What's it matter? The late game to wrap up the 2023 regular season here in week 21. The Toronto Argonauts looking to get their 16th win of the season go into Ottawa to take on the Red Blacks. The Red Blacks had a bye last week. Only one team in CFL history has won 16 games in a season, and that was the Edmonton franchise back in 1989. Of note, they did not make it to the Grey Cup. I I have seen some people making predictions that whoever wins the Montreal-Hamilton semifinal makes it to the Grey Cup. They're already predicting that the Argonauts will be upset. I don't think I agree with that. In this game, the Red Blacks players are playing for for pride, playing for opportunities next season. They have a lot to prove. The Argonauts, like Winnipeg, like Montreal, like Hamilton, have opportunity to rest some guys here. Ryan Dinwiddie may have to hide Chad Kelly's helmet to keep him off the field, but I believe that's what... They might not even put it on the bus to get from Toronto to Ottawa. It would be a a wise play uh, to protect Chad Kelly. I still think that the Argonauts are deep enough that they will win this one with nothing to play for, but I I think there's enough fire there that the Argonauts will will win this. Does Dustin Crum start for the Red Blacks or do they go to the Arbuckle train and see if it'll take them down the line? Or Terrell Pigram as well. I, I I don't see... Nick Arbuckle getting the start. I think you might manage this game with having Pigram play one half, Crum play the other half, and see how they can lead the offense with, especially Terrell Pigram has not had a lot of game action other than short yardage situations. So why not put him in there for an entire half right now and give him the opportunity to run this offense? I'm going to pick the Argonauts mostly because Cameron Dukes is showing that he can lead this offense. The defense under Corey Mace doesn't quit. The Argonauts having clinched, I think it was back in May, still continue to win. So what's going to stop them now? And with that carrot out there of 16 wins against one of two rookie quarterbacks, I'm liking the Argonauts in Ottawa. for listening to our show third down gamble is hosted on podbean and can be found on apple podcasts google podcasts and spotify follow us on twitter at third down gamble join us again the third down gamble podcast audio worth watching third down gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. 
please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.